How do you define a successful life? If your answer can be summarized as earthly excellence and sacred significance, you're at the right place. Join host Stephanie Smith as she shares three keys unlocking a life of lasting purpose. Learn yourself, love God, and live connected. You'll become smarter about yourself, skilled in human dynamics, savvy about the Christian faith, and strengthened to pass this wisdom on to upcoming generations. And now let's get started. Welcome back to Life's Key 3, where we dive into the key three aims of life, because if you're going to live well, you have to live intentionally and wisely in these three areas. That is to learn yourself, to love God, and to live connected. Are you a detail person? You know, as you read through the Bible, you will find that there are a lot of details that are never included. Think in terms of all of the people, for example, whose stories we read about in the Old Testament. And how many times do we actually read about the details about what they look like, how tall they were, what kind of clothing did they wear? And, and so many other facets of a human being that we would use today to describe someone. If someone says to you, hey, do you know so-and-so? And then we think, oh, yeah, you mean the person, blah, blah, blah. We kind of give this description. The Bible does very, very little of that. It also gives very little description to a lot of physical items. Yes, it does go into great detail in some areas as related to, for example, the setting up of the tabernacle and later the building of the temple. But if you if you look at all of the different stories in the Bible, there's so many details of things that we entirely know nothing about. Well, today is we're going to pick up with John um, chapter 10 and the second part of John chapter 10. John actually takes a um, diversion from his normal kind of writing, which does not include a lot of details. And he opens this part of the, the chapter up with some specific details. And so we have to think, well, what's the significance of this? I don't think it's just because he was bored and decided he was going to try out a different writing style that day. He opens by describing the time of year. It's winter. The place it is in the, Jesus is walking, not just in the temple, but it's in the colonnade of Solomon, part of the temple, and the setting. It's during the Feast of Dedication. So let's look first at what was the Feast of Dedication. Well, a couple of episodes back, we, we talked about the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles and how that was one of several feasts that God had specifically ordained that people would follow, and we can find those in the Old Testament books, especially in the the Torah, some of the first five books of the Bible, and where God said, this is something that you need to commemorate every single year. And we talked before about the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles that represented the Israelites' deliverance from Egypt. But the Feast of Dedication is not like that. You're not going to find any feast of dedication in any of the Old Testament. This feast is still celebrated today in in many places around the world, other than where it is perhaps banned um, from celebration. 
And it is perhaps the most well-known Jewish celebration here in the United States in, in general. And it is what we would call Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights. So where did this come from if it didn't come from anywhere in the Old Testament? Well, between the time that the Old Testament was written and the beginning chapters of the New Testament, there was a lot of history that took place. There were about 400 years of history that took place by the time the the last book in the Old Testament was written and the gospel of the gospels were written. And it's fascinating history to to read about. Well, what had happened was the Greeks had overtaken and were in control of the, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Now, this was not the temple that Solomon had built that we read about in, in the Old Testament. That temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians about 600 years before Christ. And so when we, when we read about the temple in the New Testament, it's important for us to understand the Old Testament. It's important for us to understand they weren't just all referring to this one building. There were actually three different temples that were built and then demolished over a period of time. And this is one of the things that is part of the, the Jewish um, culture now in terms of the, the um, Judaism as a religion, and that is the importance of rebuilding a new temple. But the importance of that is that it's not just like, oh, let's just go find a piece of real estate somewhere and build a temple on that. It's because there is this um, argument over who has rights to the physical area of land that's this sacred spot of ground that they believe the temple must be built upon. And the problem with that is because the Muslims say, no, this land belongs to us. And that's why there's the temple hasn't just been rebuilt. But the, the first temple, Solomon's temple, had been destroyed. And if you remember anything about the Old Testament or just about history, eventually the, the Jews were split into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then at one point in time, the northern kingdom was banished off into exile. And then the southern kingdom eventually also later fell into uh, being conquered, and it was sent off into exile. And so what had happened was when you had this kingdom that had been sent off, uh, the southern kingdom that had been sent off into exile under the Babylonians, and they were there until Cyrus the Great gave the um, permission for them to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So eventually, a new second temple was built. Now, it was nothing like Solomon's temple. It wasn't as grand in any way, shape, or form, but it was their holy temple. Eventually, what happened is when King Herod, that we read about in the New Testament, went on a big building campaign and ended up majorly expanding this temple and all of the area around it. And it became one of the most well-known and largest religious sites in the ancient world um, in, the, in the time of Christ. And so it later became known as Herod's Temple. But it wasn't because Herod had built it from the ground up. It had been built 
many, many years uh, before then. Well, what had happened was that the Greeks had, um, throughout their wars and everything, had taken control of the temple. And so in 165 BC, 165 years before Christ, the Greeks had defiled this temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. This was mean, cruel, spiteful, intentional. It was the ultimate act of desecration. They knew that a pig was an unclean animal. They knew that the altar represented the holy of holies. It wasn't just something that they did out of curiosity or they did out of ignorance. It was a deliberate, intentional, evil-motivated act that was not just to make fun of. It was a direct attack on Judaism itself, not just a desecration of the temple, but an attack on Jews and all of Judaism. Well, there was a man, uh, Judah the Maccabee, and he led a small band who fought against the Greeks after this happened. This was a David and Goliath battle. I mean, the Greeks totally outnumbered this small band. It was one of those, there's no way on earth that, that the Maccabees, as they came to be known, were, had any possibility of winning, and yet they did, and they took back control of the temple. Well, when they won, there was only one jar of pure oil left in the temple. There were other jars of oil, but they had all been intentionally defiled by the Greeks when they ransacked the temple. So when the Jews rededicated the temple, they only had enough pure oil that was going to keep the internal flame going for one day. And this, this eternal flame, it wasn't just an architectural design feature. It represented the light, the presence, the blessing of God. It represented their commitment to God. It represented their relationship to God that the light of God would never go out. But they only have enough for one day. And so what are they going to do? Well, according to history, when they put this, this pure oil that they have back to light this eternal flame, it burns for eight days. What's the significance of eight days? Eight days is the amount of time that it took to follow the protocol so that new pure oil could be manufactured. And so that is why today with Hanukkah, there is the lighting, the lights are so significant because it represents this miraculous oil. And every night for eight days, then you have another light that is lent. You know, here in the United States, we still sometimes commemorate people or events with eternal flames. Probably one of the best known in the United States is John F. Kennedy's gravesite in Arlington National Cemetery. I've had the privilege to, to be there and to bear witness to that gravesite. And it's not just an eternal flame that represents John F. Kennedy as an individual, but it represents the ideas that he espoused. So Jesus is at the temple. 
And, and he's walking in this colonnade of Solomon, which represented not only wisdom, but it represented power and it represented God's blessing and abundance. And while Jesus is there walking, the Jewish leaders, again, surprise, surprise, surround Jesus. I mean, they're so irritated with him. They are so um, dismissive of him. Why don't they leave him alone? But no, they have to keep showing up. We talked about this in a couple of episodes previously. People who are jealous of you probably aren't going to leave you alone. They're going to keep coming after you. And that's exactly what continues to happen here. And so they surround Jesus and they ask him this question. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, on the face of it, that question sounds sincere and simple enough. It has the outward form of a legitimate inquiry. But here's the thing. They don't really want to know if Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. They're not, they don't have an authentic search for truth. They're not really wanting to know, hey, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one that we've been waiting and watching for? Is this the fulfill- fulfillment of all of the prophecies that we've had throughout the Old Testament. That is not what this question is about. The question is designed to get him to state something so directly that killing him is justified. It's a setup question. It's not a legitimate search for truth. And we need to be mindful that just because a question is put to us, that that doesn't require that we take it at face value. We need to go beyond the outward form or the structure and look for intent. Now, I'm not talking about living suspicious and paranoid about every time somebody asks you a question, you know, I'm getting into this weird, what do they really mean by that? Are they trying to say something? Are they trying to set me up? I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about using discernment. You see, as soon as Jesus says, I and the Father are one, which is a way of saying, I I am the Christ, they pick up stones, again, we've seen this before, to stone him. This is a form of killing someone, a pretty brutal form of killing someone, hitting them with enough rocks until they die. Jesus turns the tables on them, not literally, but figuratively here. And he asks a question, which also from our last episode shows the importance that our words align with our actions. And he says, I've done many good works. For which of these are you going to stone me? His question can be taken at face value. He is asking them to take responsibility for their actions. Well, they totally ignore that and and brush it off. You know, it's not because of your good works. Okay, can we get that here? Let's just conveniently ignore the testimony that these miracles would affirm that he is the Christ. I mean, how many people has he healed at this point? He has made the, we we saw just a few episodes ago where he saw the man who had been blind from birth, his having his sight, not just restored, having sight for the first time in his life. 
We have seen people who were paralyzed get up and walk. We have seen people whose hands were shriveled up cleansed. We have seen people with leprosy totally um, cleansed and, and made entirely well. And they just want to conveniently ignore the testimony of all of his works, of everything that he's done. And they say, oh, well, it's not because of your good works. Let, let's, let's just ignore all of that. It's because you've made yourself God. Jesus then reminds them of the scriptures, which keep in mind, they're the teachers of, they're the experts on. They are supposed to know inside and out. And so he says, okay, I'll take, I'll, I'll come back to you on your turf. And he says, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. And I'm paraphrasing here, but then basically he says, he goes on to say, so how is that any different from my saying, I'm, I'm a son of God. And then he goes on and he says, again, if you don't believe my words, look at my actions. Again, the words and actions of a person who operates in integrity and in righteousness will always align. Now, for us, this isn't about perfection. Jesus was the only one whose words and actions perfectly aligned all the time. It is, however, about consistency and transparency. The Jewish leaders are really ticked off by this. And so they seek to arrest him. I guess they give up stoning him and decide that they will arrest him instead, but he escapes. And he not only gets away from the temple, but he goes to the area of Galilee where John the Baptist conducted his ministry. Now, again, remember, this is the backwater part of Israel. The Jewish leaders have no interest in being here. That is the, the scum, if you will, of of the, the Jewish nation, that, that, that area uh, geographically. And it's like, fine, good, goodbye, good riddance, go on. But when Jesus goes to this area, many people come to him, and they not only come to him, they end up believing in him. They even remembered what John the Baptist, who, who's now dead, had said about him. And even though that's a small little insertion there in this passage, it's also a good reminder for us that our effectiveness, our ministry, the impact of our life can continue even after we have died. Even when we are no longer physically present on this earth, the words that we leave behind, the impact of our ministry, of our faithfulness, can still impact and help people to come to believe in Christ. So what do we want to take away from today? Well, number one, we must rely on the Holy Spirit for discernment in dealing with people. This isn't just in regard to those who have beliefs opposite ours. It's, it's for everyone in our life. You know, do you have a person who says, oh, you, you can trust me and invites you to confide in them, and yet you have experience with them gossiping about other people or sharing things about other people that really shouldn't have been shared? Does the spouse, the spouse who says, oh, I'm, I'm faithful, balk when you want to have access to their phone, their email, their computers, their finances, or details about their travels? Are there parts of their life that they, that they want to keep to, to themselves? 
does a child, if you, if you have a child, you know, still, still living at home and, and you have some concerns about their activities and they're like, oh, no, 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 you can trust me. I, I'm not involved in uh, drugs or drinking or sex or whatever. Do they become insolent and irritated when you ask questions or want to examine their, their property? Humility welcomes transparency. Always. Humility welcomes transparency. Now, this doesn't mean that we have the right to get into any person on the planet, into all of their business. But you can understand that depending on the type of relationship that you are in, the closer that you are to someone, the more responsibility you have towards or for someone is is representative of the degree of transparency, not only that you allow, but that you welcome because you don't want there to be any concerns or any fears or to have any questions about the alignment in their life between what they say and what they do. Another thing that we can see here is authentic questions, questions that can be taken at face value aren't asked as a setup. The original question in this passage that the Jewish leaders asked of Jesus, it was a setup question. It wasn't an authentic question. And we're not obligated to answer any question that somebody puts to us just because it has the external form of looking like a legitimate question. We need the Holy Spirit and we need to have discernment to recognize when that's not a legitimate question. I'm going to not be set up by that. You know, one of the benefits of Bible study is that this allows the Holy Spirit to bring verses back to our remembrance. When Jesus countered um, with the Jewish leaders in this passage, he brought back part of the scriptures to them. He recounted a passage from scripture that exposed their hypocrisy. Well, we need to know the scripture so the Holy Spirit has passages that he can bring back to our remembrance in difficult situations. And this doesn't mean we need to have an answer for everything. It does mean we need to store up truths so we don't fall prey to the traps that others may try to set for us. And lastly, you know, sometimes it's just good to get away from a situation, just to remove yourself entirely. Jesus didn't leave Jerusalem out of fear, but out of wisdoms. Sometimes we're called to stay and confront And sometimes wisdom says, let's have an exit strategy. We need to remove ourselves from this situation entirely. And the result of Jesus leaving Jerusalem, this this place of hostility, is that others come to belief in him. Sometimes we better serve the work of God when we leave the places of power and prestige, like Jerusalem and the temple at Jerusalem, And we go to the humbler places. This is where we, again, need discernment from the Holy Spirit to know when is it time to stay and when is it time to say, I'm getting out of here either permanently or for a while. All right, well, that's going to wrap up the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. And next time, we're going to start diving into one of the most famous miracles in the Bible. And it's fascinating to see people's response to that one. Yet again, we see the division that, that Jesus, um, perhaps one of his greatest miracles, 
um, brings about. Remember this, my friend, you have an impact that is immeasurable, eternal, and irreplaceable. And that is why it is so important that you make the choice to think deeply, live intentionally, and engage fully in God's grand story. See you next time. Thank you for listening. For information on speaking engagements and other resources, visit the website at stephaniepresents.com. Remember, learn yourself, love God, and live connected.